when Abram was 99 years old. Okay, so the previous verse said in the last chapter, when he was 86 years old, when Ishmael was born to him, the son of Hagar. So 86, 99, that's 13 years. We just covered 13 years like that. How about that? That's, that's kindergarten through high school. That's the first day of kindergarten and high school graduation. 13 years is a, is a good run. We just covered it. When Abram was 19 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." The promises of God in the Abrahamic covenant to his descendants for the land of Israel to his future descendants. And as we're seeing as we go through Genesis, of course, the nation of Israel exists against all odds, just almost incomprehensible odds that an ethnic people group would be dispersed for 2,000 years and come back to become a nation again in the very land where they're dispersed from. There's nothing like that in human history, even remotely close. And the nation of Israel existing today, the Western Wall, the rabbis, the religious zealots, the desire to rebuild the temple, even our own president recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, us, the most powerful nation in so many ways of the world, giving the thumbs up and the green light, recognizing Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. It's just amazing. It's miraculous and it's amazing. And that is something that we get from the context here. It's not the focal point for application, but it's worth noting. When God says it's going to be that way, he's not linear. He's outside of time. We know that. And so he just, he just does what he wants to do according to his will, which is perfect. And that star of David flying over Jerusalem right now is a testimony of God keeping his promises to Abram, even right here in Genesis 17, to his descendants forever. And how far away that promise must have seemed in the beginning of the 1900s and the persecution of the Jewish people in Russia and Eastern Europe, Europe and even America and even around the world the perpetual persecution against the Jews for 2,000 years from the time they're dispersed. Just It's just so amazing that they're back in the land. And one of the strongest economies in the world and certainly one of the strongest militaries in the world, it's such a testimony to our generation that our God keeps his promises. And if he keeps his promises to Abram and his descendants as a nation, which plays into the end game for the return of the Lord, how much more equally does he keep his promises to us? And we talked about this Saturday night in application that the promises of God have a universal application the moment we give our life to Christ, that all the promises become ours. But we talked about Saturday night how the personal elements of those promises, when he promises 
to you. And we talked about being tuned into the frequency of the Lord where when you make time for his word and you let him speak to you from his word because it's living and powerful and he speaks to us, it works effectively in us who believe, as it says in 1 Thessalonians. And then we have the frequency and we know the dialect of the Holy Spirit to us. And then suddenly we get a confirmation from a, a radio broadcast or a worship song that we've sung before, but suddenly takes on a unique insight where the Holy Spirit just confirms something already spoke to you. Or a friend comes up and says something, and it's a confirmation. Or the message at church is a confirmation, and you begin to see the Lord line things up of affirming his promises to you for what he's doing in your life and the plans and purposes of your life. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And I feel sorry for people who don't make time to be with the Lord and to hear his voice on a daily basis. Because if you're not properly discerned to hear his voice for you, you will not recognize those promises that are applied to you. So often we think of these promises of God. Of course they apply to Israel because the star of David flies in Jerusalem. Of course they apply to Pastor Chuck because his parents dedicated him to the Lord and the Jesus movement came through him and he's in glory. But how do they really apply to me? Yes, they do. The story and the legacy of the life of Abram is believing the promises of God not just for the church as a whole, not just for humanity as a whole, but the promises of God for you and me, for our transformation, for our resurrection, for the purposes of his will and work in our life as we walk with him and abide in him. Which brings us back to Abram in this passage. Look at the progression of the promise. He says, my covenant with you verse 4, and you should be a father of many nations. It just goes from glory to glory, doesn't it? It just gets better with the Lord. Faster, stronger, deeper, better, more glorious, from glory to glory. Because think about this. Back in Genesis 12, when God called Abram, he said, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to land, I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. See, that's the original promise. I'll make you a great nation. And then he shows him the land that I'm going to show you. And then when Lot chooses the, the, the fertile land in the valley of, there with Sodom and Gomorrah, God says, north, south, east, and west, it's all yours. The dust, if you could count it, your descendants. Then he elevates him and says, the stars, a couple chapters later, I'm your exceedingly great reward in your shield. And then he says, the stars, look up now. Forget the dust, let's look at the stars. It just gets better. And then now, after 13 years of silence, raising Ishmael, becoming the age of 99. Now, we can picture Billy Graham at 99, right? He, he passed away when he was 99. I picture Bob Hope at 100. He seemed to be in the news when, you know, in the back end. Bob Hope was such a key part of an entire generation, the greatest generation. So looked to Bob Hope, all the USO shows during World War II and all that. Bob Hope, I mean, us baby boomers remember Bob Hope. So we picture people at 99 or 100, and of course, the degeneration's not as firm yet on entropy, but it is moving in that direction. This is not the pre-flood world, this is the post-flood world. Now, we know that his wife is very attractive at 90, because he's still going to lie about her being his wife in a future chapter. We might say she's a looker, you know, at 90. She's a good-looking woman. She's attractive at 90. And he's 99. She's going to say that 
she's past the manner of being able to be pregnant. So she would be considered, you know, menopause, past the capacity physically, practically, to have a child. That's what she's going to say coming up in a future chapter very soon. So here, against all odds, on the clock, where it seems like the clock's working against you, God says, I'm going to make many nations from you. Oh, wait a second. You mean after 13 years of silence? I'm just trying to hang on to what you already promised. A nation. And since we don't have a child, that still seems pretty big to believe. God says, many nations. See, when we walk by faith, women, men, gather here tonight. And we believe those promises, they take on greater depth and magnitude. Almost like the kaleidoscope or something where it just, it just expands and takes on a glory. And for the people, see, Jesus said many are called but few are chosen. And so the few that are willing to go through the narrow gate, the few that are really willing to walk by faith and be all in with the Lord, the promises, they just, they, they just unfold from glory to glory and they take on greater depth and greater meaning. Some people, they just never kind of get past this really surface stuff, which is better than not getting past anything. But there's the glory to come. And to him who has, more will be given. And if you don't have any children and you're still believing him for a nation, he's got even bigger promises. Try this on, many nations. To him who has, more will be given. And haven't isn't always visible or tangible. It's the faith in the heart. For faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. See, we can learn from Abram that we might be believing in God for promises he's affirmed to us that seem even farther away now than a decade ago or two decades ago, 13 years. And yet, God's like, hey, I gave you that promise and you were able to believe me at that time, but I've seen your faith this whole time where you don't see anything affirming that promise coming to pass yet. And I see that faith, and I see the growth of that faith, and now I'm going to give you even more. I'm not just going to bring a nation from you. I'm going to bring many nations from you. And not only that, I'm going to bring forth kings from you. And we know the story that the king of the Jews comes from him. And we know the story that the king of the Jews, Jesus, is the king of kings. The king of the universe is going to come through him. And the seed of Abram, capital S, is Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. And speaking with my son Luke today about the theory of relativity, one of those light conversations you have with someone who's really smart, smartest guy in the room. And he was talking about how time warps in space. And if you go to space, your watch will go a little slower than you come back. And did time change? I'm like, man, it's kind of heavy conversation early in the morning. I just need a bowl of cereal right now. And say that again. Let's work this again. And I say, well, here's how I break it down, Luke, with time. Because I was like, well, that's like the movie Interstellar. Like, it's just so trippy, like the whole time. And, you know, they go away for an hour and they come back. And this guy's been in the spaceship for two decades. It's trippy, dude. I go, but I'll tell you this, Luke. This is what I know about time. And Luke goes, well, it's, it's theory anyways. It's not science. It's theory. That's why it's called the theory of relativity. I'm like, thank you, Luke. Well, let me tell you facts, Luke. The fact is Jesus holds the universe together. 
The fact is, Jesus created everything on this planet with time, space, and matter. And the fact is, Jesus came to this planet in our time, space, and matter, on our calendar, and our day planner, to die for our sins that we could be saved. So whatever's going on out there in black holes with warp time, it doesn't matter to me because our time zone is the time zone of salvation. Our time zone is north on your compass. All other different types of time, theoretically, if they even, well, it's a reality that time changes in outer space. It doesn't mean anything to me because it's right here on earth that this time is the measuring rod of everything in the universe. He's like, yeah, dad. This is a good conversation. And I say all that because in this promise to Abram, from you will come nations and kings comes the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, the line through the Virgin Mary, King Jesus himself, King of kings, Lord of lords, who comes in Revelation 19. It's all right here. So believe on that one, Father Abram. Believe on that one. And our application is a good one. Believe the promises of God in their fullness for your life. Go after all of them. Believe all of them. Cry out for the affirmation of them for your life. Don't make them God's promises for Greg Laurie filling a stadium in the 30th year. Make them God's promises for you and what he's called you to do and what he's working through you. That's how I would apply it in my life and that's how I want to apply it in my life. And we're not living on the glory of a past day or the uncertainty of a future day. We're living in the moment and the power of the promises of God for our life today and what tomorrow will bring. With vision for tomorrow, but faith for today. Such an incredible passage of scripture here. Because God's given them more and more promises when the original ones in their black and white edition have not even come to pass. But he's getting like better color, fuller sound, surrounds. It's just going from glory to glory and it's expanding. And yet the baby's still not born. It's awesome. Hold on to the promises and make them yours for your life. I said it last week and I said it Saturday. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it for a while because you know how I am when something really resonates with me. Hudson Taylor, that great missionary to China and all that he did. In rereading Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, what really stood out to me was a statement where he said, I'll take four decades of trials and tribulations and failures if they will shape me for one great decade of fruitfulness. And how my heart burned when I read that in a good way, that it's all so redeemable. Every experience we've had, the good decisions, the bad decisions, And if we've grown in the Lord, those promises can take on such a a depth of application for such fruit if we just keep growing and learning through the trials, the tribulations, the failures, and the hiccups, and the speed bumps, the heartaches. We can go through so much that can seem like there's so much against us for so long And yet, if that produces the character of a woman of God like Abram or the character of a man of God like Abram, then that last decade or that one year can be so glorious, the full fruit that can come from it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers from them all. And our trials and tribulations are working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. 
Don't let the testings break down the promises. Let the testings bring forth the promises in a greater glory as they apply to our life. After all, he even said after that, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He says, I've made you a father of many nations. It's already done. He's outside of time. It's already done. Who can understand free will and sovereignty? But it's already done. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This is a done deal because God said so. And this is what I'm going to do through you as we go forward in time, space, and matter. I love it. Star of David over Jerusalem. Every promise is ours in Jesus' name. Verse 9, we read on. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So with Abram, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And then 500 years later, when Moses and the nation of Israel come out of Egypt, all the descendants of Abram, who are now millions of people, and they go to Mount Sinai and all that is happening, he gives them the law, the moral law, the legal law, and the religious law. Circumcision is still the sign of the covenant. So circumcision is the Abrahamic covenant, and then the Mosaic covenant brings in the law and the various elements of the law. And of course we know the problem that unfolded through centuries and what religion does is somehow for the Jewish men that the circumcision of their genital in their mind made them righteous. And, you know, we can relate to this because a lot of us come from backgrounds where infant baptism would make you righteous. Now, a lot of that goes back to originally the Catholic Church and then the Reformed churches, the different churches of the Reformation era. Lutherans were baptized. You'd be baptized Lutheran. You'd be baptized Anglican. You'd be baptized into state churches because it was an identity. So it was like a, it was a dual baptism where you're identified as, you know, of course, you're, you're German and you're Lutheran. Of course, you're English and you're Anglican. Of course, you're Scottish and you're Presbyterian. See, in all that state church timeline of like 1400, uh, the colonial era, that's how that worked. And in the same way, people would trust in their salvation from an infant baptism in their state church to save them, which, of course, saves nobody. And that's the, you know, God gives physical things to help us understand spiritual things, but that's the danger with the human thinking because we gravitate toward physical, carnal things. Think what John the Baptist said when the Pharisees came out. Do not say we're the sons of Abraham. God is able to raise up the sons of Abraham from these stones. Okay? Like, that doesn't mean anything. He basically said, just because you're circumcised and you think yourself righteous doesn't mean you're anything. Repent, you brood of vipers. He called them snakes. Because they were trusting in their physical circumcision, which they had nothing to do when they were infants anyways. 
And I even think back in my own life when I told my mom I was going to get baptized. Jennifer and I were baptized together in 1988. I wanted to get baptized shortly before that, but Brian Burson said, wait, just wait till the spring baptism and we'll do that. And um, Jennifer and I got baptized together. Wonderful, beautiful day. I still remember it with such clarity at Oceanside Harbor. But when I told my mom I was getting baptized, she was really upset. Now, she wouldn't be upset today at all, but she goes, you've already been baptized. Well, Mom, that you bring up a good point. So thank you for doing something that you felt was moving me in a spiritual direction with Jesus Christ. Thank you. But that was your decision for me, looking out for me with your faith as a parent. I need to be baptized of my own will as identifying with my faith. Well, yeah, it's all good here, Mom. It's all, like, it's all good here. But she was offended. Now, we had conversations later on about, like, why I don't think infant baptism would save anybody. Of course, you know, like, that's just, but that's what religion does. That's what it does. So what circumcision, and of course we even see in the early church when Paul went preaching to the Gentiles and like, hey, Timothy's saved, but he's got a Jewish dad. And then he's going to the synagogues and he's like, you know what, Timothy, it's going to be easier for our ministry if I get you circumcised because it's one less obstacle to me preaching the gospel to the Jewish people in the synagogues. So I know this doesn't save anybody, but Timmy, could you be circumcised? We'll get you circumcised. It's just one less obstacle. All things, all men. Tim's like, okay, yeah. Excuse me. His mom was Jewish. His dad was Gentile. And Paul saw that this is going to be a problem when we go in the synagogues, because they're going to. This is going to be a like a, a problem, because he's half Jewish, and this is just a problem. And it was a compromise. And so Timothy was circumcised. It's there in the book of Acts for us, chapter sixteen. But then when Titus got saved. And the Jewish believers, so they're Jewish ethnically, but followers of Christ, they're like, he's got to be circumcised. And Paul's like, so wait a second. So you mean to tell us we'll become a Christian so we can become a Jew? No way. And he called them false brethren who insisted on it. And he said, I withstood them to their face. And he, he said, these guys have a different gospel. And he was ready to rumble with them. Like you read Acts 15 and Galatians chapter one. He's like, you want some of this? Let's go. You pick your battles, and when you're battling for the integrity of the gospel and salvation by grace alone, it is interesting, though, because he had Timothy circumcised with the Jewish mom for the benefit of ministry. But as a matter of principle for theology, he refused to have Titus circumcised because circumcision has nothing to do with being saved in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Because what do we see in Hebrews 11? Everybody, they're all saved by faith. Not by an outward act, but by an inward belief. And what does God say throughout the 1,500 years with Israel? That you would circumcise your hearts. See, the cutting away of the foreskin is really symbolic of cutting away self-confidence to save ourselves or thinking we can do it. It's cutting away the pride of man. Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's from the Old Testament brought forward with New Testament affirmation. So this sign of the covenant, it's a beautiful thing that God gave to Abraham's household to say, you can't bring about my promises. You can't just sleep with Hagar and have a kid and think that's how the promises happen. 
So we're going to cut away the foreskin and teach you a lesson. It's not about you and what you can do, supercomputer, son of Adam, and all your greatness. It's about me and my promises to you and your wife that defy human intellect. That's how it happens. You do not save yourself. I save you. And this outward act of obedience in this covenant is going to teach you to put no confidence in the flesh, but believe in the promises. Now, for the New Testament, that's what water baptism is so similar for us. Because what does water baptism show a believer? Well, first of all, anyone, at least on record, as best we can see in the Bible, that gets baptized, intellectually and cognitively understands what they're doing and giving their life to Christ. Old things have passed away, all things are new. So in water baptism, we go underwater because it represents the death of the old man or old woman and coming out of the water to new life in Christ. Now, obviously, in some cases, people can't go underwater for various reasons. I once did a baptism of someone who was terminal with cancer and they could not go underwater. So it's still, you know, poured the water on them. But the symbolism is no confidence in the flesh. Romans chapter 6. See, the Old Testament is a shadow of things that come with the fullness of Christ. So the shadow even of circumcision here is a shadow of no confidence in the flesh. But that is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's in the Old Testament. Everyone in the Old Testament is saved by faith, not by religion, by being circumcised by their parent on their eighth day, or anything else that's outward. If, but that outward that they had, and as they grew up, and they're raised in the scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, when you rise up, you'll tell your kids about me, you'll walk in the way, you'll say, this is what God did, and then they'll want to walk with me, and you'll be blessed, and your children's children will be blessed. But that was all by faith. So the circumcision was a sign of distinction and separation from the nations and no confidence in the flesh. It is a sign of the covenant. And that's biblical circumcision under the Abrahamic covenant. And it was important to the Lord. Anyone doesn't do it, they're cut off. Now we read on. Verse 15, Then God said, Abram is for Sarai, your wife. He shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Awesome. Look at this. So 13 years after Sarai's great plan to make Hagar a surrogate mother to bring about the promises of God, she's 90. When the angels come in the next chapter and they promise the child to, to Sarah and She's listening. Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I've grown old, or after I'm past the manner of, you know, my menstrual cycle, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? She's like, hey, look, we're two old people. We love each other. But, you know, it's kind of like it was when we were younger. And the Lord said, Abram, why did Sarah laugh? Surely, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? And is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. It's an awesome story. I love that story. Because in Hebrews 11, it says, Sarah counted him faithful who promised it. And that's why she's in Hebrews Hall of Faith. So whatever was going on with her laughing, and then Isaac means laughter, the son of promise. Hey, she's in Hebrews 11. It's a crazy play, but it worked. Touchdown. Sarah. Like, it's crazy cool how God works through all of our little nuances of what we wrestle with and we feel strong in the faith and then we doubt in the faith like John the Baptist and all these different things. But yet God knows our heart 
and here's Sarah after all the Sarah after all these years. She gets a name change at 90. She gets a reaffirmation of the promise, and she gets an upgrade. She gets an upgrade. Not just a nation's going to come from you, but nations, because of course nations came through Esau, the descendants, and it's like it's awesome. So it's just an affirmation of what we covered earlier with Abram. Abraham now. God is so good. God is able to do exceedingly above and beyond all that we could think or ask in his church for his glory, universally and in you and I specifically, personally. God is so good. I mean, think how frustrating it would be to be Sarah. You had this great plan. You're just trying to produce a child. You're just trying to, ah, just, Oh, her frustration, and she's beautiful, and yet she's humbled because she can't have a child, and it's just this thorn in her side, and it's past any hope, and yet, oh, there's my husband still believing. I'm, I don't believe anymore. Hagar, the maidservant, and then like, well, that blew up in her face in 13 years of the other woman that had the child, and the looks at dinner in the Bedouin tent. <laughs> Ladies, can you imagine? I always tell guys when they have multiple wives, you don't really ever divorce a wife. You know, like, because my brother had three wives and kids from all of them. He's just like, he's like Jacob. He's got multiple wives and multiple problems. And when he's making lots of money, he just wrote checks. He'd just say, how much? And write the checks. But he didn't have lots of money anymore, and all the kids grew up, and now it's a different type of challenge for him. It's just, like my mom and dad, they've been divorced for 40 years, and what do they do? They took, take care of each other. And they still push buttons, you know? And when there's kids, it's just kind of like that. Can you imagine dinner in the Bedouin tent? Abraham loves Ishmael. He's got him signed up for T-ball, AYSO soccer. He's learning how to play the violin. I mean, it's Ishmael. He's the son of promise, but not really. But you never know. Plan B. Jacob had plan B, C, and D. Oh, Sarah at the dinner table. (laughs) And Hagar giving her that look like, just, oh, wow. It's crazy. 13 years. So this child that Sarah thought would bring her joy only reminds her of a bad, a really bad plan. A You know, and you can make one bad decision on one night and pay for it for at least 18 years. Like God said in Deuteronomy, oh, that my people would consider the latter end. That's for me. That's for all of us. That we consider where things go. It's amazing what just one night or one bad plan. God is merciful and God is gracious, but there's always things. And we can't change anything. So if you feel bad about something right now, well, we can't change it. So be the best you in that situation. We can't, we, can't, we can't change yesterday. We all have failures from yesterday. I'd like another shot at 30 years, but I, just to be more of who I could be, but been thinking about it. Well, you know, there's hope because I kind of take a you know, Hudson Taylor plan. If we can get one great decade in down the stretch here, that's going to look really good as long as I learn and grow from what I've been through in the past. And the same for you and I, you as well. But God is so gracious because look, in the midst of all these things, here come these promises and they are amazing. Here come these promises and they are amazing. 
13 years of dinner in the Bedouin tent under these circumstances, 12 at this point. And they're just, well, 13 in the gray zone there, but they're just amazing. Like if anyone felt like they probably didn't deserve the promises of God, it's Sarai. And the Lord's going to come to her house and promise her a son. It's so far-fetched at this point. She still believes. But you know, you're kind of like that. Sometimes we're like that in the promise of God. We want to believe, but we're afraid to get our hopes up. Can you relate to that? I know people like that. They believe it like, I just don't want to get my hopes up. Like, what if we don't get the job? What if they don't accept our offer? What if I do get fired? What if, you know, my visa gets denied? You know what I'm saying? Like, well, trust that the Lord's bigger than that. If God's not bigger than the consulate, he's not very big. If he's not bigger than the, the realtor and the, the bank, he's not very big. We're trusting him to raise us from the grave. Don't be afraid to go after all the promises and trust that if God's closing a door, he's the final authority. I love it. God says to Sarah, I mean, mother of nations, that's what's coming for you. It's an upgrade. In spite of all that she's done, it's an upgrade. It's amazing. It's very encouraging. Now we read on. Verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and said, he laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after you. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I've blessed him. I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this said time next year. And then he, God, finished talking with him, and God went up from Abram. So Abraham said to Ishmael, excuse me. So Abram took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So we close with this segment of scripture. And so God's affirmed the promises to Abraham and the sign of the covenant. God has affirmed the promises to Sarai, who's now Sarah, his wife. The promises, and they've expanded. And now we see a couple things to wrap up our evening. First, we see God saying, oh, excuse me. First, we see Abraham saying, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God says, you know, I'm going to bless Ishmael, but that's you, not me. And that's, you can't really say he's fully the flesh because God's going to bless it, but you can kind of draw a comparison in the New Testament where it says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That God can, or it says in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Romans 6 goes, that's not an excuse to sin, but God somehow redeems things in, in just a crazy, cool holy way not a carnal way a holy way and it's just so awesome how God can do that that the principle of our flesh our self efforts to please God that for sure is a no-go with God and in Galatians this whole story Hagar and Ishmael are an example of the flesh 
in the context of Galatians, that that can't do it. But moving past that theological type, there's still the reality of the context of the personal story, which gets our interest with Abraham and Ishmael, because he loves his son. He loves his son. And this son he loves. He's poured into this son. He's, it's his son. And God says, no. So Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael would stand before you. Can we just make this work? This is working. Sometimes we're like that. Hey, let's do ministry this way. It's working. Yeah, there's a better way. Let's do marriage this way. It's working. No, there's, there's a better way. Let's do business this way. It's working. No, there's a better way. You see, so often in our life, we have a plan, and that's really the context with Ishmael here, not so much him being a type of the flesh, but really a person that God loves and cares about, the first son of Abraham through Hagar. And Abraham's begging, like, He's, I love this kid. He's everything to me. And God's like, look, I'm going to bless him. Kings, he's going to be blessed. He's going to be famous. He's going to be amazing because I love you and I love him. But the promises are not based upon your manufacturing. The promises are based on my character promising and fulfilling. You will have a son through Sarah and you will call his name Isaac. That's the promises. The Messiah is not, the king of the universe who's holding it together is not going to come through Ishmael. That's not how it works, but I'm going to bless him. The son of promise is the one to whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come through, and that's according to my promises. It's too big a, it's a bigger picture. It's too big of a picture. It's not going to, we're going to redeem the situation for Ishmael with a great life and many wonderful things, but there's, this is so much bigger than you, me, and Ishmael. I love this kid. I'm going to take care of him for you. He's going to be great. He's the starting quarterback in high school. He's going to play D1. He's going to be super smart. He's going to be amazing. Everything a dad wants his kid to be. He's going to be that guy. He's not going to look to you to provide for him. He's going to provide for himself. He's going to be a go-getter. He's going to be a blessing to you. He's, he's going to be awesome. But it's the, this is the son of promise that the Messiah is going to come through. This, you will call him Isaac, which means laughter. Because it's what I promised to you and your wife. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's, it really is an example to us that sometimes there are things we say, oh, God, that this would stand before you. And God says, "That's I'm going to work through that, but I got something more. It's like Pastor Chuck Smith, 17 years pastoring four square churches with two years worth of sermons and having to change churches every two years because he ran out of sermons. God's like, you know what? Uh, here's a bigger picture. Now, this little church in Huntington Beach, you're gonna you're gonna go through First John, verse by verse. And we're gonna do it a different way. We're gonna do ministry my way, not the burger fundraiser to get people to come to church. But you're just gonna teach the Word of God verse by verse. You see, it's kind of like that. Sometimes it's we have good motives and we're trying. God's got something better. The story of Ishmael and Isaac is very encouraging because God doesn't just throw Ishmael under the bus. 
He has a way of redeeming it. It's like Joseph to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God made it for good, for the saving of many. Who can sufficiently understand the goodness of the Lord this way? And we see the happy ending on this chapter. Abram immediately goes home, and all the men get cut. He immediately acts upon what he's told to do, which, by the way, is really important as a closing thought. When you know God's telling you to do something, act upon it. I mean, there's times you feel like, I think I should call this person, or, ah, God's putting this person on my heart, whatever, or, you know, I needed to go visit this or do that. But there's times when you just know, especially when you know the frequency, when he's saying, act on this right now. You ever had that? We're like, God's like, call this person right now. And you can't, I got to call this person. You ever had that? Or go there right now. Right now, go there. You just know, like, and it's, you, you need to act on it. When it's so clear what he's saying for you to do, you need to act on it. There's a time to pray, and there's a time to talk, and there's a time to consider and meditate. But there's times when he says, do this, and you need to act on it and do it. And then the next thing will come. How many people don't get the next thing to act on because they haven't completed the first thing to act on? To him who has, to her who has, more will be given. So I love how Abraham just, it's building blocks. It's a domino effect because when he's called to offer up his son, it's just him doing what he's always done. Trusting, obeying, listening, acting, following through. And believing. And he also gave me, hey guys, we got a new plan in the household. He's got hundreds of servants. So today, we're all going to get cut. Yeah, you work for me, under my tent, in my tents. Everybody. Which is pretty cool. One standard. Hey, you might have a lot of faith, you might have no faith. But if you're employed by Abraham, the father of faith, today's the day we all get cut. Because in this household, everyone identifies with the covenant, which is a great example for us in how we handle the stewardships of what's entrusted to us. Hey, you live in Abraham's tent, you get cut. And you might not believe those promises, but you work for him, and God told him, if you're benefiting from the blessings he's given him under his tent, you get cut. And that's Abraham's responsibility. And if you don't want to submit to it, hey, you can go hang out with Lot. He's about to buy a time home in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's feeling pretty good. He survived Chedorlaomer on the little side trip to Damascus. If you don't want to get cut and go by the standard in the house of Abraham in the tent, you can go live with Lot. He's got an upgrade. He's no longer pitching his tent. He's going he's gonna to buy a town home. There's a way that seems right to people, but the end thereby is death. But the way of Jesus is the way of life and faith. Be encouraged. What a great chapter with great application. God help us to know what it means in our lives.